Well, uh, we are glad that uh, you guys are here with us today. Um, we are continuing in our series called Blessed, and uh, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks um, about the Beatitudes, what what Jesus meant when he pronounces these blessings, right? And, and even if you're not from a church background, even if Christianity is, is not familiar with you, you've probably heard of the Beatitudes somewhere. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Um, we hear them all the time in our culture. We see them all the time, whether that's on bumper stickers or whether we see it, you know, um, embroidered on maybe a Bible cover somewhere or somewhere, uh, somewhere else. We see them everywhere. Uh, the problem is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we really have a misunderstanding of this word blessed. Um, you know, when we think about the word blessed, we think about happy, right? I mean, we think about happy, and we, and we talked about, um, two weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus comes and brings this message. Um, this is part of a larger teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this teaching, Jesus really presents his listeners with an upside-down version of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Upside-down to what you would think it me- would mean to be prosperous, upside down for what you think it would mean to be powerful, to inherit something, to be wealthy. And so we've said that, that Jesus brings an upside down kingdom. Um, and, and so within this kingdom, things don't make sense uh, the way that our world around us and in a lot of the ways we naturally think. Um, and so uh, we said this word blessed, when Jesus uses this word, it has more to do with an inner satisfaction and sufficiency than it does outward circumstances. I'm not just blessed because I get to go on a really fun vacation. I'm not just blessed because my kids uh, are actually behaving at the dinner table. Um, while that is a blessing, Jesus means so much more than that by these words blessed. I'm not just blessed because I have a lot of friends, because I have uh, a lot of uh, popularity maybe, but I'm blessed because I'm content. There's this inward satisfaction that no matter what happens on the outside, on the inside, I'm still content. And so that's, that's, that's what Jesus means by the word blessed here. Uh, and so last week we talked about how he's, the first pronouncement of this was blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And we said that word poor in spirit really means those that are spiritually bankrupt, those that can identify their own brokenness in their lives. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's coming to understand that I am so broken Um, because of my choice, because of my sin, because of my life and the choices that I make, that I realize that I'm utterly and completely broken. And that brokenness then should lead us to a place of surrender, which is where we talked about last week. And Jesus gives a promise with that, right? He says, for those that are spiritually bankrupt, they're going to be the ones that inherit the kingdom. Those are the ones that are going to inherit this kingdom that Christ is bringing. And so, and so we talked about how only through brokenness and surrender, um, when we raise that white flag, at that point, then we get into the kingdom. We are a part of that kingdom. That's what it means to be a part. I'm, I'm giving up allegiance to everything around me, to the world, and, and even the way that I see the world, right? I'm, I'm giving up allegiance to that in order to follow Christ, in order to view the world through his lens and what he says about the world. We also talked about how these Beatitudes are not just um, characteristics of different distinct people, but they're characteristics that all followers of Jesus should have. What, What Jesus here is doing is he's giving a list of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so these, um, these beatitudes that he's giving, these, these um, perspectives, these attitudes, really build on top of one another. And so last week we talked about poor in spirit. To build on top of that this week now, we're going to talk about, he's going to say, blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn. And so this is going to build all on the foundation first of being spiritually bankrupt understanding my position before God and how I am completely bankrupt. There's nothing good that I bring to the table. Okay? And so as we, as we get into this idea and, and, and this thought, what Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, um, I think it's important to realize that this is going to smack our culture right in the face. 
This is going to go in, in complete opposition to what our culture says it means to be blessed. Um, in fact, our culture has embraced the idea that if, if you're blessed, it means that you're pretty much a happy-go-lucky person, right? Um, like, like, to be blessed means that, that you're happy and you're, and you're joyous and, and everything's always great because you're getting what you want. In fact, we even write songs in our culture about being happy, right? In fact, this song, and I know some of, some of our younger people are going to make fun of me because this song I know is like, I don't know, five years old now or, or older. However, I think it does paint a good picture of what our culture says and looks at being happy, right? And so I want you guys just to watch a couple of minutes of, of what our culture defines happy as. Some of you guys already know what it is. Some of you guys already seen it. Now, for some of you, I realize this is the first time you have ever heard this song. Um, and for you, welcome to 2019. Um, this has been a part of our culture. For some of you, you're like, man, I haven't I forgot that that song was even there. Like, I, it just is reminding you. It's one of those catchy tunes, right? Now, something I found interesting, uh, if you saw the guy dancing with the cutoff, the red cutoff sleeves that looks like he had no idea what he's doing, that's me if I were to try to, to, to dance this out. If you saw the little boy who was just like tearing up, like that's my kids. They get all that for my wife and they have that ability. I have none of that, right? Um, but I think this paints a good picture of what we, what we think about in our culture is being happy. Now, that's a fun song. I, I enjoy listening to it. Um, but, but here are a few of the words that, that Pharrell Williams, the, the guy who wrote this, um, here are a few of the words that are in the, in the verse and chorus of the song. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say, Sunshine, she's here. You can take a break. I am a hot air balloon that could go to space with the air. Like, I don't care, baby, by the way, because I'm happy. It's really hard to read lyrics when you know the tune of a song. Like, I'm trying not to sing it because that's just going to be a blessing for all of you. Um, he says, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. This is how we define truth, happiness. Because, hap, uh, because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Now, happy is defined based on you. Uh, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do, right? And, and this idea of happiness being based on how I feel, based on what I want, based on the truth of reality of the world is, is happy, right? If, I'm, if I achieve this happiness now, I've somehow arrived, that's an idea that pervades our culture. And sometimes we, we can smirk at that, we can laugh at that, but the truth of the reality is it's the world we live in. We, we are just surrounded by the thought that everything in the world should be happy-go-lucky. should always be happy, right? In fact, one thing I didn't know about this particular song um, that when, when Pharrell Williams, the guy who wrote this, uh, when he recorded the video for this song, um, he recorded 24 hours worth of this song. So for every hour of the day, 
he had an hour-long video of someone singing this song over and over again in different scenes, different places around the world. And so, they were, and he created this website called 24HourHappiness.com. And it was just this idea that for 24 hours, you could just have this happy song and be happy in your life. And I think that's a lot of how our world thinks is that, you know what? As long as I got sunshine, as long as my life is like a hot air balloon, like I am just got this happiness within me, then, then, then I've arrived, then I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. And the sad truth of the matter is, it's not just the world or our culture that believes that. We brought that into the church as well, right? I think we come into church with this predisposition, with this, with this pre-understanding that I have to come into church with a smile on my face. I have to come into church and just smile and say, you know what, everything's okay. Everything's good. You know, we see each other and we shake hands and we say, how are you doing, brother? Man, I'm doing, I am so blessed. How are you doing? Man, I am too blessed to be stressed. Like, amen, hallelujah, praise Jesus, right? And we come in thinking that, man, we just have to come into this place and everything be all right. But yet when Jesus describes the church and what the church is supposed to be, it's more like a, like a hospital environment. It's more of a place for the wounded to come and to be healed. It's a place for those that have been hurt and abandoned to come in and find hope and meaning in life. But yet, I think even in the church, we now have brought in this idea that, man, if I put a smile on my face, everything is, everything's okay. And so I just want to kind of set the tone this morning that our, our topic at hand is a little bit more... Um, it's a little bit harder of a of a thing to talk about, and and I was even thinking about that. Man, here we are, Mother's Day, celebrating Mother's Day, this exciting moment, right? And we're going to talk about mourning, right? Like, man, who planned that out in the teaching? Well, I can tell you guys who it was. Uh, it wasn't me. Um, but but you know, as I as I thought about that though, I think that you know a lot of times mothers understand this, maybe even more than than fathers do sometimes. Um, Mothers understand what it's like to mourn over the child who is, who is gone away from God. Mothers understand what it's like to have their hearts broken by their children. Um, I know I'm really just lifting you up this morning on Mother's Day. Um, mothers, mothers understand what it's like to feel the weight of somebody else on themselves. Um, and so I, so I think it is actually very appropriate. However, we're not going to look at it from a happy-go-lucky state. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as one, as one commentator put it, he said, this translation actually seems quite, uh, quite to be a paradox. He says that it almost seems like Jesus is saying, happy are those who are unhappy, right? It's almost saying that, you know what, you're going to be happy, you're going to be blessed when you get to the point when you're sad. Because this word mourning, it literally means to be sad. However, he goes on to say that there's a difference between empty happiness and true happiness. Right? Empty happiness. I think that relates back, right? This is the idea of just I put on this superficial happiness. And when bad circumstances happen, when I'm sad, then that's all gone in that moment, right? I'm completely emptied like a balloon laying on the floor with no more air in it. But yet when I come to understand true, what it truly means to be blessed in those moments that I'm that I'm sad, that, that I go through hard things in life. Yeah, I take a hit, but I'm not completely wiped out. And this is a mindset that we see go throughout Scripture. True happiness, right? True happiness, it never ignores sin or makes light of it. Instead, it sorrows over sin. It's heartbroken. It mourns over the sin in our life. And that's, that's really where we're going today, Right? Um, where, where Jesus talks about mourning here, um, if we believe that he was building on what he had previously said, this isn't mourning, uh, this isn't bereavement, right? This isn't mourning or, or being sad over losing someone in our life, right? That's, that, that is a way that people mourn. And there, there are scriptures and, and places that talk about people who mourn over those that they've lost. And that's a legitimate emotion and feeling to have when we lose somebody that's close to us. But what I believe Jesus is talking about much more here is mourning over our sin. When we get to that moment, right, of being spiritually bankrupt, when we can take an honest look at our lives and see how broken we really are, 
that then should lead us to a point of, of, of being sorrowful over those sins, of mourning over those sins. And so we said each week we're going to be looking at a inside-out perspective. We said that these beatitudes, they first start on the inside. They first start to, to affect our heart and, and our minds and the way that we think. And then that starts to pour out into our actions and the way that we live our lives. And so our inside-out perspective today is, is just that. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Those that mourn over their sin, those are the ones that Jesus is, is going to say are going to be are going to be blessed. And so this word mourn that Jesus uses here, right, it, it literally is defined as a kind of grief which takes such hold of a man that it cannot be hidden. It is the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart. It is the sorrow which brings an unrestrained amount of tears to the eyes. It's a sorrow that then leads to tears, to crying, right? If you've ever been around or been in a situation where you've seen somebody who's truly been mourning the loss of someone close to them, right? That is not a dry moment most of the time. The sorrow and the deep pain that is welling up in their hearts pours over to their emotions, and you start to see that by, by tears and weeping. And so Jesus here is, is pointing this to our lives and, and saying, those that truly get what it means to follow me come to a place that they get so broken over their sin that they don't just dismiss it, that they don't just uh, pacify it, they don't just say, you know what, like, I'm, I'm not as bad as that person, but they're broken over their sin. They're broken over their their, their sin. And you see, this, this idea of mourning and being sad, it goes against our culture, even to a point, right? Um, not all of our culture, but some of our culture says that, you know what, crying is unacceptable, right? Because it's a sign of weakness, right? You guys heard that? Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the phrase, real men don't cry, right? That was something that was kind of thrown out as, as, a, as a young boy who was playing sports or in different arenas, right? There was this idea that if, if you're truly to understand what it means to be a man, like, there's no cry. There's no crying in baseball. You guys, some of you guys know, know the, uh, uh, that reference, right? This idea that there's, there's no place for tears in, in, in our world. There's no place to be broken because that's a sign of weakness. And a sign of weakness is considered less in our culture. But yet, in the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is, is bringing into to this world, there's a place that those that are the strongest, those that are the most fierce followers of Jesus are those that walk the way of mourning and pain, right? We talked about it a few minutes ago that even invades our church culture as well, right? This idea that you can't come to church and cry. What are people going to think about me, right? People are going to think I'm weird. They're going to think that I'm actually, like, there's actually sin in my life and that I'm kind of messed up even though I still come to church, right? I mean, heaven forbid that would happen, right? So we, we, we get this idea, we get it from all places that, man, this is not a popular opinion that we cry and that we're broken. But yet Jesus said that he is for those that are broken. And he brings, ultimately brings comfort to those that are broken. Henry Blackaby, um, you guys might be have heard his name before. Um, he's, a, he's a writer, uh, he was a pastor uh, for many, many years. But he said this, he said, when we see our sin... From God's perspective, we are deeply, deeply, deeply grieved. Often we weigh, uh, we weigh these, these bad, we have these internal battles. Um, and although a lot of times we want to do what's right, a lot of times we seem to fail. But yet as we follow Christ, we recognize this deep sense of grief in those areas that we don't hit the mark. Um, last week, we, we shared a verse uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Um, and, and I want to bring that back up today because I think it's, it plays a lot into our understanding of grief um, and, and more, more specifically over mourning and the things that we mourn over, right? But Paul says, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so right here, Paul is, is comparing. He said, there's, there's one way to grieve, there's one way to be broken that produces one thing, and then there's another way that produces something else. There's a, there's a godly grief that will result in a repentance, a turning from that, 
Um, but then there's also a worldly grief that ends up producing death in the life of the believer. And so what I want us to do, um, one of the things, I know we have several people that are kind of visiting for the first time today, so I want to kind of set you up for this so you're not kind of thrown off. Um, one of the things that we value very highly here in Franklin County and, and in our group, uh, one of the, the values we have of being small and it's really helpful is that we get to discuss some of these things together. We have some time in our service where we get to discuss some of these things because I feel like when you discuss them out together, like you, they, just, they just go a little bit deeper than when you just kind of listen um, to one guy talking for, for the whole time. And so we take um, a few times throughout our, our morning time together and we'll break up into some groups of people that are just kind of sitting around you and we'll discuss a few of these ideas that we've been talking about. And so the first question that we're going to talk about in our groups for just a few minutes today is this. Um, how would you explain the difference between guilt as the world sees it, um, as, as worldly guilt, um, versus um, repentance, this guilt that will lead to repentance that's described here as this godly grief? Um, how, would you, how do you see the difference in those two things from from your perspective, how have you seen that? Maybe you've been in a situation where, you know what, I felt bad about something, but it really just kind of led to this very empty place. And maybe there's been other times in your life that you've truly been broken over some sin or something going on in your heart or in your life, and you've seen where it's led to a completely different place. And so we just want to take a few minutes and talk about that, and then we'll come back together um, and we'll finish discussing what it means to truly mourn over our sins okay well hopefully um hopefully that was uh helpful um hopefully you guys had some some good discussion of that um kind of the difference between this this kind of worldly grief and and true true repentance that he's talking about and and we see this even even kind of played out in the story of the bible we see this even in jesus's own life um a couple of of people a couple of his disciples actually kind of give us a really good picture of this um, and I think it's the difference between Judas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, right? A follower of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Judas was there when Jesus did the miracles. Judas was there when, um, when Jesus washed the feet. Judas was there when Jesus did all of these things. And then you have Simon Peter. Same, same guy, still there, in all of those same situations, right? So you have two guys, both deny Christ, Right? We, we're familiar with what Judas did. Right, he, he betrayed Christ. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver. You know, that whole story that led to, to his arrest uh, and crucifixion. But then you have Peter, right? who in that same moment, right, when, when was questioned, are you a follower of Jesus, what does Peter say? Right? It says that he, he cursed at them. And he's like, There's no, I, am, I am not associated three times. Right? Same situation. Same guys. Both in a, in, a, in a place of sin in their life, but yet very different responses. See, Judas was, was, was remorseful because of what he, that sin had led him to, right? And so we get the scene where Judas goes and he throws the money at the, at the, at the feet of, of, the, of the priest and he's like, you know what, I, I don't want any of this. I don't have anything to do with this, right? And then he goes and what does he do? He hangs himself, right? Um, and that's, that's, I think, where worldly grief can sometimes lead to is a place of 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 death in Judas's case physically but even emotionally spiritually because that, that that sin and weight is still there right but yet we see in in Peter a very different reaction right he was acknowledged by his sin and he was broken by his sin right he when when that rooster crowed right you guys remember that story that that Peter was was broken right he he remembered what Jesus had said that he was going to do that right and there, then there's that scene, I think this is really significant, when Jesus has come back from the dead, right? And he meets with Peter, and he has this intimate moment with Peter. And what does he say? He said, Peter, he said, do you love me, right? And he asked him that three times. I don't think that's by coincidence. I, I think that I think the, the, the Bible is, is trying to teach us and tell us something, right? Each one of those times that he denied Christ, uh, Peter now is, is repenting over that. And he's like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Right. There's the difference in just saying I'm sorry and actually being broken and being repentant of our sins. And so if we are to be those who mourn, what does that look like for us? What does that what does that mean 
for us. And I think there are two avenues in our life. If we're followers of Jesus, right, if we're disciples, if we are those that, that pick up the banner of Jesus and, and we carry it around and say, we're trying to follow, we're following after Jesus, what does that look like for us? And I think there's, there's two areas in our life. One, we mourn over our sin. And secondly, we, we mourn over the sins of the world. Um, we mourn over our sins and we mourn over our sins of the world. And, and why is that, right? Why, why is it that we should mourn over, the sin, over sin? Because sin breaks the heart of God. That's the reality. And so if we follow God and if we love God, we should be broken over the things that God is broken over. Our hearts should be torn over the things that tear God's heart apart, and we should be broken over those things. Um, there, there are multiple examples of, of God where he talks about um, how much he can't stand sin and how much it breaks his heart to see his children when, when they sin, right? One of those places is Ezekiel chapter 6 in verse 9. He says this. Um, so he's talking about those that, if, if you follow him, um, those who escape will remember me among the nations and carry it out. But halfway through the verse, he changes the tone. He says, um, how, but he says, I want you to remember how I have been broken over the sins of their whoring heart, over these hearts that have departed from me, from their eyes that go whoring after idols that, that are their intent on other nations and other idols, right? Um, that they will be loathsome in, my, in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for they are all an abomination, right? God said that his heart has been broken over people that are, that are, that are chasing after other things, right? Over sin of trying to find something else to take the place of God in their life. God's heart is broken. And so if we are followers of God, that our hearts should be broken over the same and so first we need to look at that in the context of our own lives. And we have to admit that our sin that we commit, our sin that we, that we commit on a regular basis, like even though those sins are forgiven, they still break the heart of God. Right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, I love, I love my children, but my heart still breaks when they, when they do something I know that they shouldn't be doing. And I think it's the same thing with our father. We are his. If we are disciples of Jesus, we are his, and nothing changes that. But his heart's still broken when we, uh, when, when, we, when we have sin, when we allow sin to kind of rise up and, and, and take hold of our life. And so, and so we have to, to break this sin because it breaks the heart of God. And, and, and part of that process then is, is being broken, is mourning over that sin. And so we have a story this morning um, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And I think this is a great picture of what it looks like to be truly broken over our own sin in our life when we come into the presence of God. Um, and you guys might be familiar with this. Um, this is a moment, Isaiah's having a vision, right? And, and so it starts out in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robes filled the temple, right? He's got this, he's having this, 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 this moment where he is in the presence of God. And he said, above him stood the seraphim, right? These are these kind of angelic creatures, right? Uh, each which had six wings, two to cover their face. Now, why do you think they would want to cover their face? Anybody got a guess? Because they're in the presence of God, right? And there's something about being in the presence of God that, man, you can't even just look at him because of the glory and his presence. And so two of them, they're covering up their face, right? And with two of them, um, they cover their feet. And with two of them, that they flew. It says, and one called to another and said, listen to what their chant, what their, what their cry was. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and filled the house with smoke. Now, uh, I, I want to read all of that to just kind of set the tone for what happens uh, when Isaiah comes into the presence of this glorious and holy God. I wanted to read all that so you get the, the, the picture that this is not just the way that we casually, I think, think about God sometimes, right? We kind of, we kind of view God as just kind of like, this person, this kind of needy friend who's always there whenever we need something, right? He's just kind of anticipating, waiting. He's just sitting up in heaven, like, waiting for us to call him on the phone because he's just so lonely, right? But we get a very different picture here. Isaiah is, is, is painting a picture of a God who is absolutely complete. He's absolutely holy, set apart. He needs nothing from us. And so when we enter into his presence, right, what is the response then? 
Verse 5. Um, sorry, jump ahead. Verse 5. And I say, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? So let's pause for just a second right there. Isaiah is saying, when I come into the presence of the glory of God, when I have an experience with God, when God shows up in my life and it reveals that there's something in my life, here's my response. And what does he say? He says, woe is me. I like one of the other translations says this. He says, it says that I am ruined. And I love that. I love that translation of that. I think that really paints the picture, right? When we come into the holy presence of God and we're bringing the sin and junk into our lives, right? And when we're honest in that moment, right? We realize that we're completely ruined. We're completely bankrupt over that, right? Do you not just, just see Isaiah's just like, I am ruined. I am lost. Do you not hear the mourning that's happening inside of, of his heart in the words that he says? And, and then he goes on in verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal um, that he was taken from uh, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Right? This, this idea that now you, because now that you have confessed that and you have mourned over that now, now you are cleansed and clean from that. And I think it's also important to note what is Isaiah's response then? What, what happens immediately after that? Let's go to verse 8. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You see, when we get to that moment where we're broken and we mourn over our sin, when God calls us to go, we have no, we have no response other than obedience in our life, right? When we get to a place that we're actually broken over our sin, we're ready to be absolutely obedient to what God calls us to do. You know, as I was, as I was thinking about this, this idea of, of the holiness of God driving us to mourning, I thought about this question. Um, we discussed that this week um, as we got together to study this passage. And, and I wonder how true it is in our lives, right? I wonder how, how much, I wonder which of these we cried over more, Right? I wonder if we cried more over the sin that we've committed against the holy God or if we cried more when someone that we thought was really important died in this life, right? So did we cry, do we cry more over our sins or when Dale Earnhardt died? Do we cry more over our sins than when Princess Diana died, right? That's a big moment for some people. Do we cry more over our sins when, when, when we've committed a sin against God or when Michael Jackson or Prince or Robin Williams or one of these people that, that a lot of people looked up to and said, that is an important person. I care about this person. I, I'm invested, right? Um, I even heard this week, I was listening to a podcast, and they were saying that when Prince died, there were people who just basically just shut down everything in their life, right? And they just went and they just hung out in this place because of this music artist who they had probably never even met because he had passed away, Right? But yet, as I think about my life and, and then those around me, I, I don't remember the last time that I was just completely broken over my sin. That I would, allow, I would allow my sin to bring me to the point of tears in response. And so first, we, we must mourn over our own sin. But yet, as followers of Jesus, and secondly, we also need to mourn over the sin of the world. Right? I, it probably doesn't surprise you to know that we live in a broken, messed up world, right? Like, I probably don't have to give, stand up here and give you a whole lot of examples of how messed up our world is, right? I mean, you can tune into any social media, any news feed, anything pretty much in the world, and it's going to tell you stories of how messed up and how broken our world is. And I know a lot of Christians that will stand over here and say, you know what, I'm going to be broken over my sin, or at least appear to be broken over my sin, but I don't care what happens to the rest of the world. It's just going to hell in a handbasket, and I don't have to worry about it. I don't care about it. It's just going to do its thing, and I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> but yet I go back to the point, if it breaks the heart of God, should it not break our hearts? Right? If it breaks the heart of God, it should break our hearts. And so these, these sins that we see in our world around us, these broken things in our world, the fact that we have young kids that are being abducted and sold into slavery, right, into the sex trade, slave trade, as, as, as we see these horrific things that are happening in our world, 
We see people walking into these public gatherings and just shooting people for, for really no good reason other than, than they have some personal things that are going on, right? They're mad because you look different, because you act different, because you're from a, a different part of the community, right? I'm going to come in and I'm just going to blow up everybody in there. I'm going to shoot everybody in there. We live in a broken, broken world. And it should break our hearts as well, right? And to help see that picture, I want to point us back to uh, a study that we, uh, a place that we just finished studying a few weeks ago. And that's in the book of Ezra. If you guys remember, we walked through the book of Ezra over the fall. Um, and it was incredibly encouraging. I, 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 was, I was talking with Ross this week, and I was just telling him, I love that we got to go through that because I feel like it was one of those those, those books that we don't typically read a whole lot for like, those aren't one of those like pleasure Bible reading uh, books of the Bible. Ezra's kind of a hard book to understand. It's got a lot of history and stuff that's happening in there. Um, but there's this moment in Ezra chapter 9, right? And I'm just going to paint it really quickly in case you weren't there for us. Um, but, but God has brought his people back to the promised land. They were going to rebuild the temple. They start, they rebuild the temple. Uh, and then Ezra, the guy who's writing it, comes with a second wave. And when he gets there, when he shows up on the scene, he realizes that the people that are living there, um, that, the, that the Israelites, God's people, are not being faithful to what God has called them to do. That they have disobeyed what God has called them to do. And that they have started to take on and started to, to marry with some of these outside other cultures. And that's starting to, to influence and change who they are. And I think it's really interesting when we look at Ezra chapter 9, and we see what Ezra's response was to this sin. And I think it's going to help us a lot in our world. Look in verse 3. Ezra says, As soon as I heard this, right, as soon as I heard the word that they were no longer following God, and that they were going after and marrying, intermarrying with, with wives from these other nations, what, what is his response? He said, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled my hair and beard and set appalled. Now, I don't know that I've ever been that upset, Right? Now, I'll be honest, I get pretty upset when my Packers lose a game. And so last year, I got pretty upset quite a bit. Um, and, and this year, I'm hoping I'm not going to get quite as upset. But I never got to that point, right? I mean, when you're Steelers, I know that every once in a while they've lost a game too, right? I'm going to be very careful. Every once in a while they've lost a game, right? Um, right? And you've been upset. And, and I've even heard from some of the grandchildren, don't come see Nana if the, if the Steelers lose, right? Because that affects her day, right? We have our things that we love. But have we ever got to the point where we've just sat there and wanted to rip our clothes and pull our hair out? Right? That's pretty extreme, right? I mean, I can't think of many things that would happen in my life that would make me get to this point. But Ezra says that he sat there and he ripped his cloak, he pulled out his beard, and he sat appalled at what happened. I think that's pretty, pretty heavy. Go on and just read uh, the rest of this, uh, this passage just so we get an understanding of, of, of really what it is that Ezra is, is so upset about. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the Lord of Israel, because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles, gathered around me as I set appalled until evening sacrifices. Right? So, so we get the idea that he's there in the morning and he's just sitting Clothes ripped, hair in his hands, beard plucked out, sitting there the entire day just broken over his sin. Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. He didn't eat, he didn't drink, he just stood there. With my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed, he said. And he says, um, And blushed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has melted up to the heavens. From the day of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to the captivity, to the plundering, and to the utter shame as it is today. Now here's what I want us to notice. I think this is the, the moment that it really went home for me. What's these words that he, how does he describe these, this sin right here? What does he say? Our, 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 our. Now, let me ask you another question. Was Ezra there when they were doing all this, when all this was going on? No, right? He said, when I heard about this, he wasn't even there in that moment when all of this sin was happening. When these people were just blatantly disobeying God and, and chasing after these foreign gods. He wasn't even there. He was still back. Um, 
And, and he hadn't even brought the second wave yet. But yet, he understood that when God's heart is broken, whether he's been the one to commit the sin or not, his heart is still broken. And so he took over that ownership, right? He took on that ownership. He took on that guilt, right? And I think that paints a picture for us, right? Like, I think about when was the last time that I was broken over the sin of someone in my life, right? Maybe it wasn't me that committed the sin, but I know somebody who's living in a sin. And when was the last time I was brought to tears for that person's sake? When did I care for someone enough to be broken over the sin in their life, right? And, and, so, and so I think about not only do we mourn over our sins, but we also mourn over the sins of the world because it breaks God's heart. To help kind of illustrate this um, in the in the Old Testament, so we, we saw in, in Ezra, um, we saw how Ezra, um, how he ripped his clothes and he pulled out his beard. There's another practice that they would do uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament too, is that they would put on sackcloth and ashes. You guys familiar with that? So uh, either over their sin or sins of the world or, or someone else in, in their community that they would put on uh, these sackcloths. They would they would they would rip their clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and they would sit in, in mourning over that. Um, and, and I think it helps to understand that. So what I need is I need a, I need a volunteer. Yeah, come on. Come on, Noah. Look, first week with us, and he's already volunteering to throw on. All right, man, so your head goes through. The, perfect. Right. It is. It's, you might want to wear this home today. Help you in the room here. So, all right, so... What's some things we, we notice about this, right? Is this the probably the latest fashion trend? Is this going to get people's attention? Noah shows up to Walmart today. Well, it's going to get attention. Let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest. Franklin County Walmart that may not get a whole lot of attention outside of the people in the pajama pants and the all the other stuff, right? Um, sorry if, if that's you, um, right? But but it's going to get attention. It's it's going to draw like, hey, there's something up with this guy, right? Why is he wearing this? But two, Noah, can you tell us like? Like, let's just imagine that you just have a sackcloth on, it's right? It's definitely not comfortable. Is that going to be comfy? Like, are you going to be, like, chilling in front of the couch later today? Yeah. Like, with just, man, where's my sackcloth onesie on so I can just go hang out? Right? Right? It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to drive you to a point. And I think that was part of it. Right? I think when, when they would come and put this on, it was to show the brokenness in their life. But it was also to kind of imply this idea that I'm not comfortable staying in this place. And I'm going to sit in this mess and in this garbage. They would also take ashes, and I don't have any ashes today. Yeah, so I thought about getting coffee grounds. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, but they would also take ashes, and they would cover themselves with these ashes, right? And, and it's to say, I'm going to sit here until I've made things right with God. I'm not going to move out of this moment until I'm completely broken and completely resolved over this sin or this mourning or whatever it is that's happening in my life. And so I wonder in our lives... When is the last time we were in this moment, right, of being uncomfortable with our sin? Being so uncomfortable with the sin in the world around us that it brought us to our knees and we were broken over that. All right, so I'm going to let Noah take this, unless you want to wear this. No, I'm good. Oh, I made your shirt <laughs> That's so, fine. Dude, you're gonna, That's good. You're going to get home and your parents will be like, where did you go? And you're going to be like, this weird, I had to wear this weird burlap thing. <laughs> weird burlap thing. So I'm going to use this. No, I'm not going to say that on camera. Time you got to stop recording. No, just kidding. Um, so here's what I want us to do, okay? We're going to take a couple more minutes, um, and I want us to, to just kind of discuss this among ourselves, right? What are some of the sins in our world that God is calling us to mourn over, okay? I want us to be careful not to be judgy. Um, this isn't a place to say, how dare they, how dare them. This is a place to say, I see this happening in my world, and it breaks God's heart, and it should break my heart as well. Right? That's the discussion I want us to have. What are those things we see in the world around us that break the heart of God and should break our hearts? Okay? And when we finish with that discussion, we'll take a minute or two to discuss that. When we finish that, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the promise that Jesus gives for those that are truly mourning over their sin. So um, hopefully you guys had a few minutes. Um, I gave you more than a few minutes because I got caught up in conversation, but that's all right. Um, so, so Jesus says that we need to mourn, right? Mourn over our sin, mourn over the brokenness of our world. But yet he also then gives us a promise. And like we've been talking about, this promise is upside down when you look at, when you think about our world, right? Um, the promise is that those that mourn are going to be comforted, right? Now, typically in our culture, we say that, you know, um, if, if, you're, if you're sad, just kind of don't think about it. 
don't go there, right? Just, just put on a happy face, right? But Jesus says when you, when you truly are broken over uh, these sins in our life, that ultimately the promise then that's going to come is that you'll be comforted, that you'll be comforted. And this word comfort is a really important word. It's the Greek word paraclete. Can you guys say that? Say paraclete. Yeah. It's almost like parakeet, but it's like if you put parakeet and athlete together, you get paraclete. That has nothing to do with the definition of this word, um, but it may help you say it. Paraclete. And the word literally means to come alongside of, to come alongside of. And so it's the idea that when, 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 you're, um, when you're going through something hard, when you're mourning, when you're broken over something, it's the idea that someone would come alongside of you and help in that moment. Right? In that moment of, of utter desperation, someone comes along. It's the idea of, man, you just blew your tire out, and someone comes alongside to help, and, and someone comes along that has the tools and the equipment and what they need and the knowledge to help you to be able to change that tire and get you back on the road. It's this idea of coming alongside of. And this is the word um, we, we translate as, as comfort. Comfort. But it's also the word that Jesus uses to describe the helper that he's going to send, the Holy Spirit. Right? We just, we just talked about in Romans chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit. So like in John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, uh, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, by peace I give. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let, your, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? That this Helper, this Comforter is going to come. And for those of us that, that have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we know in those moments of being broken before the Lord and how miraculously he brings the spirit that will come in and come alongside and encourage us. However, it's also the word used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about Jesus' role for us as well. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He says, but if you do sin, right? Because we all are going to. Right? He's talking to, to disciples. If we sin, is there, is there hope for us? What do we do? He said, don't lose heart. Right, Because if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And this word that's translated advocate here is also the word paraclete. It's just another inference. And so the translators have translated advocate. Right, Jesus comes along and, and helps us. So when we are in that moment and we do sin and we're broken over that, 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 that we can be confident that Jesus is going to come and advocate, be on our side, be our helper in that moment. When we're broken and we're heartbroken, we can also know that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to lift us up again. You see, the truth of the matter is we're all going to experience pain. Right? We're all going to experience pain. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know already. We're going to all go through pain in life. But I think the encouragement we have today from this beatitude is this. For those of us who cover our sin, who are stubborn, who just put on the happy face, those who are not willing to be broken and mourn over our sin, we may not experience the pain in that moment. We're going to put that off. But there's going to come a moment. There's going to come a time. We know there's all going to be appointed time for those that are going to experience that pain if we don't follow, if we don't have Christ in our life, right? And so we may not experience that pain. If we cover that up, we may not experience the pain in that moment, but there'll come a moment in our life or the life to come where we'll experience that pain. Versus those that Jesus talk, talks about in this verse, where he says those that uncover that sin, right? Sin in our life, sin in the world, there's going to be pain that's going to come with that. Uh, we were talking about in our group, um, you know, when you, look at, when you look at sin and uncovering sin, um, we were talking about it's, it's, it's like if you have a, a garden and there's a weed that grows up, right? And, and when a weed grows up, you have two options. You can either go out there with a weed whacker and whack it off, right? And for a couple of minutes or a couple of days, right, it, it, it looks like it took care of the problem, right? The weed's gone and, and you have a nice, lovely garden. But after a few days, that weed's going to grow back up again, Right? But if you truly want to get rid of that weed, right, if you want it to be gone and to be rid of that, what do you have to do? you got to pull it up, right? Sometimes you got to dig down deep and get the what? Get the roots out, right? Now, that's a, that's a harder process, right? Your hands get dirty. It takes more effort. It takes more energy. And I think that's, that's, I think that's the picture that Jesus is saying. You know what? It's going to hurt some in, initially when we mourn and we're broken over our sin. But the promise is that ultimately we're going to be comforted right? The promise is that the comfort is worth the pain. 
we had we had someone sitting around a table that said it, said it this way. He said, "The one who knows us the best loves us the most." Right? Think about that for a minute. God, who knows us the best, who knows everything about us, right? The one who has complete authority and right to say, you know what? You're not worth it. You're not worth it, right? I know you. I know the things that you do. I know what's in your heart, right? That's the same one who loves us the most. Think about the comfort and the encouragement that that presents. So so for those of us that mourn and are broken over our sin, let it lead us to a place of being encouraged and comforted and knowing that that comfort is going to come. Because we serve a God who wants us to experience that. He wants us to experience those mercies. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to close with this. Um, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 7. Um, I want you to, to notice, I highlighted them, but also notice that I read this, how many times the word comfort uh, Paul brings up as he's writing us to the church. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who uh, are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we shall abundantly uh, in comfort too. Uh, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as, uh, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I mean, think about, Paul was not, you were not going to miss what Paul was saying here, is that we serve a God, a God of mercy and a God of comfort. And for those of us that are willing to be broken over our own sin and the sin of the world, that God promises to bring that comfort to each one of us. And I think that's where we walk away and where we leave today. And so um, Tom's going to come up, um, and he's going to lead us. Um, and we're going to sing one last song. This is, a, this is an older song. Um, it was written many years ago when I was a young lad. Um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it was written, it's called uh, Give Us Clean Hands. And it's really just a cry for God to, to cleanse our hearts and to clean our hearts. Um, and as Tom sings that, I'm going to pass out these little, these are just little pieces um, of, that, um, of that sackcloth, of that burlap. And what I want you to do as you sing this song, um, I just want you to hold this in your hand just to kind of get in that moment to think about. Um, and maybe even just be uncomfortable about, is there sin in my life? Is there sin in the world around me that I need to be broken for? And maybe we use this time as we sing this song as just a moment for us to just to just bring that to God. Uh, if we need to hit our knees, then that's fine. If we need to just stand and, and sing these songs um, and just praise God through this um, and, and give it to Him, then that's what we can do. But but we just want to create a time and a space for, for us to, to think about um, in our lives what it is that God is calling us to respond to um, and how He's calling us to be mourning over the sin in our world.